You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, the holiday season is officially upon us. That's right. Got Thanksgiving in the rearview mirror, and now we're staring down the barrel of the old double fight week. Woo! I know how excited you get for those. With both the live finale of The Ultimate Fighter Season 26 and UFC 218 coming at us on uh, Saturday night. You know, it only occurred to me this past weekend when kind of looking at the upcoming schedule how many months ago we purchased in an auction a fancy dinner party to be prepared at your house by, I believe, some culinary students? Yep, students over at the uh, the University Systems Culinary yeah. Program. You and me and our wives and some friends of ours. So it's a wine wine pairing dinner. Th- let's see, okay, let's, not, yeah. uh, let's, let's not, not shortchange this no, thing No, that's here. right. And the menu looks fantastic. Delectable. And we were thinking, you know, when we try to plan this thing out, try to pick a night on the calendar... Like, hey, Friday night's a good safe bet, right? Like, there's UFC events on, like, practically every Saturday, but not Friday. Friday's safe, and we picked the one Friday. The one Friday where the tough finale is, which means I had to do some some fancy moving around to be able to make sure I can still attend this thing. Yeah, I was going to say. Shout you... out to my colleague, Fernando Pretes, for making this happen. Were you able to get the night off from MMA Junkie? That's I had I had to work some angles to get the night off, because but I did it. If I sent an email to my editor at Bleacher Report asking what our interest was in the Tough 26 live finale, I assume he would shoot a video of himself literally lighting my email on fire. <laughs> wow. So that seems like a lot of trouble to go through because you have to print out the email and then line up, get the camera out. That's a lot of stuff to do, man. What I'm saying is it's not a concern of mine, but I can understand over there at the MMA Junkie where you all leave no stone unturned. Not a single stone. I think is the nice way to say it in terms of your uh, MMA coverage. So, yeah, I'm glad that you'll be able to join us. So, everybody, just no sports. How about that? Me and Chad are going to catch up on this one later after we eat some, like, wild rabbit fricassee with, paired with some so a nice cabernet. It's going to be just a, a glorious evening. That's right. Memorable. Beautiful. I'm sh- magical. I'm, sh- I'm showing up drunk, by the way. Oh, uh, yeah. I'm not, we'll not going to wait until I get here. My house. I'll, I'll be drinking all day. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, I'm going to see if I can order one of those Dundasso uh, sleeveless sweater vests to get here in time. Might have to do the, the quick shipping on it. Just go with the tank top. All right. Yeah. That works. Let everybody know I came to party. Ben, it seems like it's been a long time since you had a good ass kicking. What? That that seems like a weird thing for you to say. Why would you say that to me right now? I'm just saying, I'd like to see you get your ass kicked by me at Uncaged. Okay. That's right. As most CME listeners already know, I'm talking about the card-for-card greatest MMA game ever. I'm talking about Uncaged. The physical two-player MMA-themed card game for people who love martial arts, fighting video games, and strategy card games like Poker or Magic the Gathering. The game features a growing cast of international fighters and fighting styles from all over the world, and with many more on the horizon. It plays similarly to arcade fighting games like Street Fighter or Mortal Kombat, but it uses cards instead of buttons and joysticks to play. 
All of which will make it even easier for me to totally destroy you when we finally sit down to play. Well, I disagree with that assessment, but I know you speak the truth about Uncaged. Players can select from a growing list of technique cards to punish their opponents with counterpunches and body shots. Upcoming expansions are going to add even more styles and techniques, which will make an already great user experience even better. Uncaged featured a fast pace of play and great artwork on every card, making it hit for casual or hardcore fans of card games, fighting games, and or combat sports. Just go online to uncaged-cards.com to get your order in for the holidays. Each box contains 50 technique cards such as punches, kicks, chokes, and takedowns. You also get a game manual, a level change token, and an official score pad. Uncaged makes a great holiday season gift for the MMA lover on your list. But remember, the only fighting style that matters is yours. Or, as the case may be, mine, when I totally kill Ben at Uncaged. Come on. Ben, have I mentioned that Dundasso shirts are back in stock for Christmas? No. Just that, in time for Christmas? That's weird. You haven't mentioned that. I think you got seven days left to go over to Cotton Bureau and order yourself up a Dundasso t-shirt and or tank top before, whew, like dust in the wind. Just imagine a breeze coming through here and the Dundasso shirts just vanishing in a sparkle. And then a few months later, the breeze comes back the other way. And Lost to history forever. Yeah. It's a shame. We got music again this week. From our old friend, The Fifth Element, a music producer from Fort Worth, Texas. If you like what you hear on the show, you can check out more from him on Twitter, at The Fifth Element, or at Facebook.com slash The Fifth Element, or over on SoundCloud.com slash The Fifth Element Official. That's, as you know, the word the with the letter A. As always, if you enjoy the Co-Main Event Podcast, you can do us a serious solid by rating, reviewing, or subscribing to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever platform you listen on. Uh, that stuff really does help us out, so go on there and lend us a few minutes. Give us a few minutes to write a review. We really appreciate it. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, Johnny Hendrick's voice. Oh, man, Michael Bisbing. And in round number two, what's the scariest thing about Francis Ngannou? Hint, it's probably not what you think. And in round number three, hey, guys, what if Jose Aldo wins the UFC featherweight title this weekend? Did I just blow your mind? I blew, I just blew your mind, didn't I? All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from the Cheeseburger Walrus, our old buddy. He writes, we are about to crown a, in all caps, new UFC champion. Tough 26 wraps up this week with the finale uh, on the weekend to crown the inaugural women's 125 pound champion. Thoughts on doing a season of tough to crown a champion. I feel like it's an awful way to go, and here's why. Number one, nobody watches tough anymore. Number two, they don't announce the finalists until the episode is over on Wednesday, leaving the UFC no time to promote the bout and give everyone only two to three days to Google their unknown names and watch tape on them. And number three, nobody watches tough anymore. So, Ben, here we go. We just talked about this a little during the open. Uh, Ultimate Fighter season 26 finale this Friday night. We got one... We got one person in the final so yeah. far, right? Nico Montano. That's has right. Advanced to the final, and it looks like the opposite semifinal features Roxanne Modafferi versus Ciara Eubanks. So it's going to be one of those two. And I would also point out it is the, uh, at least according to Wikipedia, the one seed versus the twelve seed. Yeah. Over there in the opposite semifinal. Well, so Eubanks, a bit of a Cinderella story. And I guess if you're the UFC, one thing that could solve that problem for you, uh, or at least. 
No, problem number two, problems number one and three that the Cheeseburger Waller mentions here uh, seem to be kind of intractable at this point. Problem number two of not having enough time to really get fans up to speed on who the finalists are, what their stories are, if they haven't watched the show from the beginning. If it is Roxanne Modafferi, she's known to more, at least the hardcore MMA fans, pretty well already. Been around since, like, you know, Strike Force Challengers days. So if she ends up in the finals, then, you know, you can at least have that to lean on but it is a good point that this is one of the problems especially if you're announcing like a new weight class with a new champion and if people don't follow the show that has been poorly watched for years now which suggests they're not going to watch it then they're kind of lost as the division launches yeah i feel like at this point we've tried absolutely everything to revive the walking corpse that is the ultimate fighter right and then a couple of times there's been some legitimately interesting ideas where before the season on this show, you and I have been, you know, we've been like, oh, well, this seems interesting. Maybe we'll check out the Ultimate Fighter this season. And I think every time that that's happened, we have totally failed in our mission to actually check out the Ultimate Fighter. Well, you know what it is, though, is that every single time you, you think, okay, they come up with a new idea or some new twist or there's somebody on there that seems like, okay, this might be worth watching. And you go and you watch it and it just feels, yep, it's exactly the same. Even if there's a new little twist or something new to the competition element of it, just everything about the look and the feel and the the pacing and everything about the show, you're just like, oh yeah, I've seen this show thousands of times. I've I've been in this house so long that I feel stir crazy, just like they get when I just see the inside of it. So as even if you feel like okay, the idea roped me back in, the actual experience is always the same. Yeah, I feel like the real death knell for The Ultimate Fighter was a few seasons ago when they put Conor McGregor on there and it didn't seem to really make a difference. Like, if you, when you go ahead and put the biggest star, arguably, especially at that time, the most interesting person in your sport, in your promotion, and it just kind of fails to even make a dent in people's uh, interest for the show, I feel like that's a pretty good sign that maybe we have wrung out the old dish rag that is The Ultimate Fighter to the point that uh, no more, no more water. Yeah, when well, water coming out of this thing. If you look at the ratings, I mean, they've been kind of. I, I remember seeing this headline a couple weeks ago. I think it was for maybe the quarterfinal fights that it drew 158,000 viewers according to the ratings, which was the lowest in the history of the series. Wow. Well, that's saying something. So then, I guess the question that you know that the cheeseburger walrus is, is kind of asking there is also, what do you think that? All right, if people aren't going to watch it. Are they still going to tune in uh, for the tough finale, which, you know, just on the strength of, hey, there's UFC fights on the night. Maybe we'll, I'll show up and I'll watch it. And then I'll also figure out via the long video packages that will fill me in on everybody's backstory who these people are and why they matter. Or will it not matter for the future of the division anyway? Is it, you know, this is a, a launch, but it doesn't have to be the entire selling point the division will sell itself or not as it progresses in the near future. Well, yeah, it's not going to be like a make-or-break night for the women's flyweight division. Obviously, the strength of that moving forward will decide chiefly how fans respond to 125-pound uh, women's fighters in the UFC and, and you know as much talent as they can pull out of both uh, the strawweight division and the women's bantamweight division, I think, will have a lot to do with that and whether or not it it proves that there's enough depth to handle all three of those divisions stacked right up on top of each other. Uh, so the Ultimate Fighter season 26 finale is not going to uh, affect that one way or another. And I feel like 
Uh, the UFC even kind of understands what's going on with the Ultimate Fighter right now. G- clearly, we are using this Friday night tough finale as as little more than like uh, a promotional trampoline for UFC 218 on Saturday. And I think that the way you can really tell that that's true is that Eddie Alvarez and Justin Gaethje, who are the coaches on this season of the Ultimate Fighter, are not fighting at the Ultimate Fighter right. finale. They are fighting the next night yeah, the at the Ultimate event. Fighter. Yeah, the Ultimate Fighter. Uh, or at, I'm sorry, at UFC 2 218. And the the pair, the thing about the pairing of Justin Gaethje and Eddie Alvarez as coaches on the Ultimate Fighter is that as coaches, you kind of look at it and you think, well, I don't know. I don't know what these guys are going to bring to the table on the Ultimate Fighter as coaches, but their fight is probably going to be a 2017 Fight of the Year candidate. Yeah. So you go and you put that on the thing that you have to pay for. It sends a message to me, at least, about, you know, I guess, unsurprisingly, where your priorities are and also what you think is going to happen viewership-wise on on the Tough 26 finale. Because you put Gaethje and, and Alvarez as the main event on the Tough 26 finale, I feel like that probably really would have helped out your, your, oh, your hell numbers. hell yes. Hell yes. You want to make me sad that I am missing the event in order to eat wild rabbit fricassee and uh, take my shirt off and be drunk at Chad's house? Magical. Just a magical evening. It, it, it would, the only way you could do it is if you put Eddie Alvarez and Justin Gaethje on that fight card, and then I'd be like, damn. I need to check my phone and see if the gifts are up yet of the crazy, you know, head smashing exchanges these two are going to have. But you save it for the the pay event the next night and probably use a good portion of the broadcast portion of the Tough 26 finale to advertise your fight the next night. Then I don't feel so bad about missing it. I'll tell you that. All right. Next question this week comes to us from Ross in Ohio. He writes, so Ben Askren retired undefeated, capturing titles in two higher tier non-division UFC promotions. What are your thoughts on Funky's Marshall Times? Please discourse. We talked about Ben Askren a couple weeks ago, Ben, when he announced his retirement fight was going to go down. Uh, now it has actually happened. He won in what? Was 65 seconds or something? Some. I think it was under a minute. One I think one, they, definitely the quickest stoppage of his career. One in under a minute and then uh, announces his retirement with one caveat, correct? Yes. That he will come back if he gets the opportunity to, that, to prove that he's the best in the world. So he basically retired and then went back to the hotel and called out George St. Pierre on, on Twitter, right? And interesting that he called out George St. Pierre. Like that's the Not Tyron Woodley, right. who's the champion in Ben Askren's... Friend uh, and training partner. And in his weight class. Right. That one would, you know, on paper make the most sense if you want to prove that you're the best welterweight in the world, that you would call out the current UFC welterweight champion, but it's Tyron Woodley, your buddy, and it doesn't seem like you're going to do that. So you call out George St. Pierre, which in this case, though, you know, makes some sense because he is still regarded as the greatest welterweight of all time, just won the UFC middleweight title, plus there's some money in fighting that guy right about now. So it goes, yeah, why not call him out and, uh, you know, just throw up that Hail Mary there and see if they want to give you a call over it. But it does, you know, I wrote a column about this today about how the fact that when you first hear that, when you first hear Ben Eskin say, I'm only going to come back if I get a chance to prove I'm the best. By the way, George St. Pierre, what are you doing this spring? Uh, maybe me and you could do it. And you immediately in your MMA mind brain go, well, that's not going to happen. There's no way the UFC is going to do that now that George St. Pierre has a middleweight strap and we're thinking about what big money moves you can make before you lose him again. Uh, and the fact that you know that as a seasoned MMA fan, and that you also know that it has nothing to do with feeling like Ben Askren is not skilled enough for that fight, or Ben Askren, you know, 
talent-wise, has not proven that he could be competitive in a fight like that. That doesn't even enter into the equation with something like this. That kind of just reminds you, as a lot of things about Ben Askren's have career, career have reminded us, how this sport really works. Because Ben Askren, I think, is kind of a like a mark of our shame in MMA. That's kind of what I, how I think of his martial times. Because we never got the chance to find out really how good Ben Askren was or how good he could be. Just because this sport doesn't work that way. We're just winning all the fights is not enough on its own. Yeah, and I guess it depends who you either credit or blame, uh, depending on how you look at it, about the fact that Ben Askren and the UFC could never really come to an agreement on a contract to get him to go fight in the octagon. I think on one hand, you kind of got to respect Ben Askren's decision for charting his own course, which yeah. is, that's a thing that we talk about a lot that we kind of would like to see more from fighters. Uh, and we, and something that frankly we would like to see from the sport is, is giving the athletes more freedom and, and the financial opportunity to sort of control their own destiny and chart their own course. Certainly Ben Askren did that, right? By not signing with the UFC. Uh, by choosing to go to one FC and, and have most of his fights overseas and by choosing to had to fight in a promotion where frankly, most of his fights weren't really all that competitive. Uh, and again, it depends on, you know, I think that there's two sides of that story about do, do you blame the UFC for not giving Ben Askren a, a contract that he felt he deserved? Or do you blame Ben Askren for, uh, you know, having the testicular fortitude to turn that down and go plot his own course. Like, I think it's admirable that he did that, but I also think that assuming that he never returns to fight like Tyron Woodley or George St. Pierre, like historically speaking, his, his legacy will suffer for it. Like if we, five years from now, if we have a conversation about who is the greatest welterweight of all time, it's probably going to take a few minutes before someone lurches forward in their seat and says, what about Ben Askren? Yeah. It, I and that, that person, they just woke up. That person will be a, a just contrarian by nature, probably too. But if you recall, the UFC's offer was that Ben Askren should go to World Series of Fighting. Yeah, okay. that's what the UFC. And that is a little do. bit of a slap in the face. Yeah, well, especially after he had finagled his release from Bellator, and the story goes, finagled his release from Bellator under the understanding that the UFC was going to sign him to a contract. And you know, his contract was on up with Bellator. He got them to release him. They did, and then the UFC decided, oh, maybe not interested. Why don't you go to World Series of Fighting and get some experience? Which, especially if you look around at what you see in a lot of UFC events today, like, for instance, this past weekend at Shanghai at 1 o'clock in the damn morning, uh, if you look at who you are watching fighting at some events like that, you realize that you cannot still make that argument that it was because he did not have enough experience because he was like 12 and 0 at the time and was the Bellator champion. And you see a lot people, a lot of people with far less experience showing up in the UFC now. So that none of that really like holds true. It was a question of style and like marketability. You didn't think that Ben Askren uh, was going to bring many viewers. Maybe you thought the worst thing that happens is that he, he is the best welterweight in the world and he holds down your championship and nobody wants to see the fights because uh, he's boring. And that seems to be the, the explanation that all MMA fans filled in in their minds. And then he went over there to, to 1FC, uh, fought a bunch of times in Southeast Asia and had a bunch of events that most people didn't watch or just watch the highlights of later on. Uh, and now says so it's over. And I, I mean, I think it is sad that you just, you'd never got a chance to find out. And another, another sport, it just wouldn't happen that same way. Like you just can't really imagine. You know, in baseball or basketball or, or football or something, uh, an issue where the guy can clearly physically do it and just doesn't really get a chance to prove it in the big show. 
Next question this week comes to us from Darby James, who writes, any chance the winner of Sahedo uh, versus Pettis can bust up our hopes for Mighty Mouse's Mighty Mouse versus Thrilla Killa Dillashaw, which I believe is what uh, Daniel Cormier referred to him as during the uh, the pay-per-view event where he fought uh, Cody Garbrandt. That ain't bad, honestly. So this would be the co-co-main uh, event, the sub-co-main event. Okay. Henry Cejudo versus Sergio That's Pettis. That's not a thing. By flyweight the way. contender fight on the UFC 218 pay per view card. This is kind of an interesting question, Ben, because we've seen Henry Cejudo look resurgent during his most recent performance, and Sergio Pettis, young Serge, has obviously uh, been creeping on a come up for a while now. Uh, he's got the bloodlines, I guess you would say, the championship bloodlines. Uh, so, what do you think if somebody goes out here and does something really impressive? wins this fight uh, via highlight reel something or other is there a chance that uh this much talked about super fight versus Demetri- or Demetrius Johnson versus TJ Dillashaw which I think is is mostly theoretical at this point uh are we going to do the easy thing and just slide either Henry Cejudo or Young Surge into a 125 pound title fight against Demetrius Johnson you know, if it's Young Surge who pulls off the highlight reel finish, and it has got to be a highlight reel, it can't be like a split decision victory or something. But if he goes out there and pulls out Showtime Kick version 2.0 and knocks out Henry Cejudo, then okay, I can be tucked into uh, Demetrius Johnson versus Young Surge. But if it's Cejudo, which honestly to me seems more likely that it will be, it's harder to get me interested in that because I've seen it already and it wasn't really competitive the first time. So... What reason can you give me that I should be excited to watch that fight again? Well, I mean, I just think if you're if you're scratching around, if you're trying to rake up reasons to watch it, Henry Cejudo has looked better on the feet recently as a somewhat uh, different style that he's flashed. I don't know that you're going to be able to go out there and do anything more impressive on the feet against Demetrius Johnson, uh, considering that we have several years of anecdotal evidence to suggest that he's leaps and bounds ahead of everyone in this division. Uh, and you're right in that that's a fight we've already seen. Demetrius Johnson stopped Henry Cejudo in the first round, right? First round stoppage when those guys fought over the title. So I would agree with you that the uh, that the more compelling and the more interesting matchup here would be Sergio Pettis if he's able to pull off what would be sort of a an upset victory. But I but either way you go, I think the more interesting fight is probably Demetrius Johnson versus T.J. Dillashaw. It's just yes. a question of whether or not you can get that thing signed, sealed, and delivered on paper. Yeah, but I, I think that Johnson Cejudo too would feel like kind of phoning it in matchmaking wise. At least you could sell me something somewhat fresh if you do Pettis. But yeah, by far, uh, I think the chorus of voices calling to see that Johnson Thrillakilla Dillashaw fight is only going to grow. Next question this week comes to us from the President Abraham Lincoln. Okay. So what uh what English Premier League team does President Abraham Lincoln play for? Swansea? I just rose from the grave. Uh-huh. So this is from from beyond the grave. Perhaps our first co-main event podcast listener mail submission from beyond the grave. Rose from the grave and immediately signed with the Wolverhampton Wanderers. <laughs> yeah, yep. Rose from the grave, Ben, because the thing on his mind was this. I doubt you'll do an entire round on Gaethje versus Alvarez. Well, good calculation. So there. can we please take a few minutes to discourse it now? Stylistically, they, this may be the most violent, that's in all caps, war of all time, which is an interesting thing for the President Abraham Lincoln yeah, to say. because the Civil War is pretty violent. Yep. As I that recall. was right there. And he had kind of a front row seat to that you, one. You might call that President Abraham Lincoln's Marshall Times. Yeah. 
Uh, thoughts on the matchup, and is there any possible way this fight can live up to all the hype? Well, Ben, we just talked about it a couple minutes ago because it does shape up as a real slobber knocker, maybe one for the ages, Eddie Alvarez versus Justin Gaethje. Uh, it's going to be the second fight on the pay-per-view card Saturday night at UFC 218. What's your hype level for this one? Are you, are you sky high, or are you trying to temper those expectations a little bit just because, as President Abraham Lincoln, who is nothing if not a pragmatic thinker, notes here, is there a chance that this one doesn't live up to the sky-high hype? I am not tempering a damn thing with this one. You know, I at this point, since I'm rational enough to realize that my hype-level expectations have no impact on the kind of fight it's going to be, I'm going to go ahead and set myself up for disappointment by saying right now that I expect this to be awesome, whether it's the two minutes kind of awesome or whether it's the 15 minutes kind of awesome. Uh... This this has got to be a good fucking time one way or another. That's what I'm I'm looking at it as. And if that turns out to me me just uh walking right into heartbreak, fine, I'll accept that. But I I'm not gonna do a disservice to myself and to this fight by telling myself that oh no maybe it won't be that good. What's the point of that? It's gonna be good, Chad. Yeah, I don't know that we've ever had a Justin Gaethje fight where we walked away from it feeling like. We didn't get our money's worth or something like that, or that Justin Gaethje failed to live up to our expectations. And the same thing is more or less true about Eddie Alvarez. Uh, this is some classic UFC style matchmaking, Ben, because this is a hell of a stylistic fight. You put these two guys together and it's like putting pop rocks in your mouth and drinking a can of soda, right. which we all know is lethal. <laughs> if you grew up in the 90s, you know that that shit will kill you. Uh, I knew a guy. Everybody knew a guy. But from like a story of the division or a uh, a narrative sense, I don't know that it makes a whole heck of a lot of sense just because you've got Justin Gaethje who showed up in the UFC in July, uh, beat Michael Johnson via second round TKO in another hell of a fight that basically, uh, in a way that I don't know we've seen for a lightweight fighter in some time, kind of launched Justin Gaethje into this uh, like semi stardom, at least among the hardcore MMA set. And instead of like giving him a, a, a fight that, uh, he could breeze through and you might think would, would easily help to build the legacy of Justin Gaethje, you hand him Eddie Alvarez, who's a guy who lost to Conor McGregor in November of 2016, had the no contest against Dustin, uh, Poye in May of this year and is 34 years old. So while still being a top fighter, I'm not sure what the story of Eddie Alvarez is at this point. So he's a dangerous fight for Justin Gaethje. And if Eddie Alvarez wins, I'm not totally sure where that leaves us. So in my opinion, I look at this and I think, okay, this looks like a hell of a fight, but at the same time, uh, kind of a weird career move for Justin Gaethje, unless he wins it, in which case you just shot the kid to the moon. Absolutely anything after that. Well, but then if Eddie, I think... If Eddie Alvarez beats Justin Gaethje, then that's an instant career reviver right there. You beat Justin Gaethje, who everybody was really hot on. So, I mean, as long as you don't do it via wall install, which, you know, Eddie Alvarez has been known, at least in recent years, to resort to a little bit of that when he feels like he absolutely needs a win. I just don't think he'll be able to do that even if he wants to against Justin Gaethje. But if he does manage to go out there and, like, knock out Justin Gaethje, well then, hey, you know, Eddie Alvarez is right back in there. No, yeah, you're probably right about that. You're probably right, and uh, it seems more likely than not that we will have a hell of a time along the way. Last question this week comes to us from Taylor Loyal, who writes, Tisha Torres' only loss is to Rose Namajunas. Uh, 
who she also has a win over. Would an impressive victory this weekend earn the tiny tornado a crack at Thug Rose's title? Obviously, you have uh, Tisha Torres versus Michelle Watterson uh, kicking off the UFC 218 pay-per-view card at Women's Strawweight. Two of the better-known women's 115-pound fighters in this division, uh, which is all relative, I guess. Uh, you got the new champ there, obviously, in Rose Nama Yunus. It's unclear at this point whether or not we're going to turn around and do a rematch with Joanna uh, Yejacek for that title. And if you're not, then probably the winner of Tisha Torres versus Michelle Watterson looks as attractive as anyone else for that position. Yeah, well, and the thing about her only loss, I mean, she did lose twice in that uh, Ultimate Fighter tournament. Got lost a decision to Random Marcos, I think, right out the gate, uh, and then lost to, to Carla Esparza. But yeah, professionally, only lost to Rose Namajunas, uh, which you know now doesn't seem so bad at all. And Michelle Watterson is a name in the division. So yeah, I, I could see if you go out there... Uh, and have a really impressive win over somebody like Michelle Watterson, then sure, you know, you might be right in there. I just, I, I kind of wonder uh, which version of Tisha Torres that we'll see there, because there are times where it seems like she, I don't want to say plays it safe, but tries to win by small increments. And as we've seen, when you try to do that, for one thing, you risk the judges not exactly seeing all the small increments you thought you were throwing out there. But another, it just d- fails to get fans terribly fired up about you. But if you go out there and you finish somebody, uh, or at least you know completely dominate them, against somebody like Michelle Watterson, an experienced opponent like that, that would really say something. Are you saying that sometimes Tisha Torres looks less like a tiny tornado and more just like a very windy day? Yeah. Like a stormy day? Yeah. like a, We're just like one of those places where it's always pretty windy. And you're like, okay, like I would regard this as windy, but I can live with it. It's not, it's not blowing my house down or anything. You know, you want to be the tiny tornado, you need to knock some houses over. Tisha, the stormy day, Torres. The pretty stormy day. Yeah, the, the gusty eastern Montana of the women's division there. Tisha, the very blustery day, Torres. Just spitballing over We'll work on it. We'll workshop that a little bit. That's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says, Email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That makes its triumphant return this week on Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And the upside is, if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. of this week's co-main event podcast is once again brought to you by the fine folks at freshly freshly is a new meal delivery service that ships prepared fresh meals straight to your door freshly does all the prep leaving you no shopping no chopping no cleanup at this point if you haven't gone online to sign up for freshly 
I'm not sure what you're doing with yourself. That's right, Chad. All you have to do is go to Freshly.com, sign up for one of their four different meal plans, select your meals for the week from the rotating menu, and Freshly sends them directly to you in a refrigerated box. Then all you have to do is just heat and eat. Each fresh meal is ready to go in about three minutes, so they're perfect for people who live their lives on the go. All the meals are fully prepared before you get them. You just have to heat them up. Freshly is an easy and convenient option for eating healthier every day, and it tastes great, too. A fridge full of fresh meals for the week, hard to argue with that. Every meal Freshly prepares is 100% all-natural with no artificial flavors or preservatives, no refined sugars, and no gluten. On top of that, right now, Freshly is offering some real savings exclusively for for co-main event podcast listeners. Just go to the website, Freshly.com, and use the promo code MAINEVENT. That's MAINEVENT, all one word, no spaces, no capitals, to not only get $20 off your first order, but $20 off your second order, too. I'm no math genius. But that's $40 in savings just for you, exclusively for being a friend of the CME. Just go to Freshly.com today and get started. Well, Ben, the sad end that we had feared for Michael Bisping came to fruition. Yeah. Against Kelvin Gastelum this past weekend at UFC Fight Night. What is it? 122. Knocked out first round. The exact midpoint of the first round. Two minutes and 30 seconds in. Uh... I don't know where you want to start with this. Maybe uh, we had discussed whether or not it would be safe and or uh, reasonable for Michael Bisping to make this immediate turnaround on the heels of being choked unconscious, stunned with a punch and choked unconscious by George St. Pierre at UFC 217. He shows up for this fight against Kelvin Gastelum on short notice as a replacement for Anderson Silva, who was pulled out because of his own troubles uh, with the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency. Uh, and then the thing that we all feared uh, that would happen to Michael Bisping kind of did happen. He is felled by a Kelvin Gastelum punch. Uh, are we worried about the future of Michael Bisping? And uh, maybe we can talk about whether or not this this underlines a, an enti- a huge loophole in, in our fighter safety methods here moving forward. Yeah, well, I mean, it's you couldn't exactly say this was surprising, right? This is one of the things that we feared, especially for Michael Bisping and the vulnerabilities he's shown recently. Even when he's fully prepared, he goes out there against George St. Pierre, gets dropped by a left hand, and then you're facing Kelvin Gaslam, who happens to have a really good left hand. And that's exactly what he gets caught with. You know, he throws that, that right hand out there. Uh, Gaslam does a nice job slipping it and then comes back hard on him and drops him. This one, you know, the thing that made it tougher to watch is knowing all the backstory for Bisping. That, you know, not just this most recent fight with George St. Pierre, the quick turnaround, but just he's he's getting to a point where he's had a lot of damage in his career. Even in fights he's won, he's had a lot of damage. I mean, you can see the damage when you look at him. And then there's all the other damage you can't see. And he comes off of that George St. Pierre fight, which, you know, not an easy fight by any means. And then three weeks later, you're back in the cage. Another weight cut, another walk to the cage, you get in there, and then you just get hammered like that. That can't be good for you. No, it cannot. Uh, I saw some people airing this out on Twitter, and I think it's an interesting point. Like, you know, there was a lot of hand-wringing, and and I think on this show we did some hand-wringing about the idea of Bisping making this quick turnaround between UFC 217 and this fight with Kelvin Gaslam. And we all wondered, oh, should this be sanctioned? What of Michael Bisping's uh, medical suspension from the New York State Athletic Commission, which was conveniently reduced uh, so that he could uh, take part in this fight over yeah. there in Shanghai? How about that? But I wonder, like, I saw this aired out on social media, and so I just wanted to bring it up up here. Are we kind of missing the elephant in the room here by saying, 
I don't know that Bisping should be allowed to take these fights uh, so quickly with such little rest between them. Are we missing the point in that Michael Bisping can't really see out of his right eye? So is it is it unsafe for companies and athletic commissions to book this guy in any fight, knowing that he is debilitated on that side of his body when, like, you can just look at the guy and say, okay, there's an issue here, there's an eye issue here. So it's not even a thing that, like, I don't know if a commission can say they aren't aware of it or, like, maybe he passed these tests. Is it just flat-out unsafe for a guy like Michael Bisping to continue a career as a professional fighter when he has that injury? Well... In order to really have an educated opinion on that, we would need to know how compromised his vision is in that eye. Right? I mean, like, unless we can get him to do a public eye test, I don't know how we're going to solve that one. So you're telling me that there's a fight pass show in this. There's an opportunity for some content. Do you some remember paid content in Rocky Two, where Mickey does the test on Rocky, where he starts his hand way over on the side of his head, and he's just kind of like, tell me when you can see my finger, like when it comes into your field of vision. And it does not come into his field of vision soon enough to satisfy Mickey. He's like, Apollo Creed would have crushed your head uh, by that time. Of course, Rocky goes on to fight many, many more fights. Uh, so maybe that is not the best lesson to bring over here into real life. But unless we had like some real sense, like a, like a test that could tell us exactly how compromised his vision is, it's tough to know for sure. I mean, we're I think we're going on a lot of like anecdotal evidence. Like we're looking at his eye; it looks messed up. He keeps getting hit with left hands, uh, so we're telling ourselves maybe he's not able to see him coming. Uh, I don't know if that's just like a stuff kind of lining up to make it seem that way, or if that is the actual reality exactly as we perceive it. But to me, the thing I wonder at this point about Michael Bisping is been fighting for a long time, been the company man for a long time. You got the belt, you got the big money fight against George St. Pierre that you wanted. You got the big payday out of it. You don't, you probably don't need to just collect a few more paydays. If you're Michael, Bisping. I'm sure it's nice, but you know, I, I know Michael Bisping's manager. I've talked to him. He says, Everything looks like it's shaping up that Michael Bisping going to be all right financially if he stops fighting. And right now you're getting to a point when you wonder, like, is the, you know, the, the same nature that made him into the kind of fighter he was, the kind of guy who always wanted to step up and fight no matter what, uh, is that going to get him in some trouble here? Because, you know, he couldn't say no to this three-week turnaround. You know, suggest, all volunteered his services for this three-week turnaround. Then he wants to fight again in March. You know, says that'll be the last one, and we know how those things sometimes go in MMA. But for all you know, you know, the damage that you're doing and the damage you've already done, you know, what good is all the money going to be if you don't have your health in the coming years to to spend it? Yeah, we talked about that a little bit with Diego Sanchez a couple of weeks ago, whether or not Diego Sanchez's career was going to end, you know, with him fighting on some independent MMA card but he's uh, a, somewhere in suburban Albuquerque. But he pro he can't do as many other things as Michael Bisping could do. Michael right. Bisping could just do TV stuff or whatever, and is probably financially better off than Diego Sanchez is, let's be honest. Yeah, and I think you can ask the same question about Michael Bisping, although you're right, Michael Bisping does have some some uh, career opportunities outside of fighting. We've seen him land a few acting roles. I don't know if it's enough to uh, you know, sustain a guy in retirement. We've seen him transform into a fairly capable television analyst for the UFC. Again, uh, don't really know what those guys are getting paid or if you can make a career out of that, but Bisping, oh, and we certainly can't forget his his DJ career, right? So Bisping should have mentioned that first. I don't Bisping's, know what's wrong with you. Bisping's got some stuff. You got going. a party, a wedding, 
whatever going on outside the cage. A rave. You're trying to organize a rave, right? Yes, I'm perennially trying to organize a rave. Yeah. Almost always. It's like I never talked to you where you're like, all right, I'm still working on the rave. Michael Bisping had been sort of a feel-good story, Ben, with his five consecutive wins from the dawn of 2015 to the end of 2016, which obviously included him uh, winning the UFC middleweight title. And now we've got these back-to-back losses to George St. Pierre and Kelvin Gastelum in quick succession. So, like, it was a... Uh, a, a, you know, he was riding high and then it all came crashing down, as we said a few weeks ago for the uh, VH1 behind the music uh, comparison. Uh, we're not feeling quite as as generous about how things are going for Michael Bisping now on the heels of these two losses. And does this does this successfully cast Michael Bisping back in your eyes as a guy who's maybe tougher than we thought, but at the same time kind of fell short in, in big opportunities? Or do we look at that title reign and think, you know what, Michael Bisping is still still has positioned himself well to to go down as an all-time great? You know, I think that one thing winning the title did, even if some people are going to regard it as a fluke or you get lucky once against Luke Rockhold, it's going to – I to some extent, I think that eliminates the knock on him that he couldn't get it done in the big opportunities. And I think it sets him up to be able to make the case, which I'm sure he will make forcefully and often whenever you give him a chance, that those times when he wasn't able to get it done in the key moments, those were pre-USADA days. And against guys who uh, in some cases were known – to be using performance-enhancing drugs just at a time when they could get away with it. You know, Chael Sonnen and Vitor Belfort. Uh, and then when the USADA era comes along, TRT has gone away, then he becomes champion. How about that? Then he's able to win one in the big opportunity. Okay, he didn't beat George St. Pierre in the follow-up, but fine. You know, he, I think he's put to bed some of that. Uh, and I don't think that there's too much he could do right now beyond, you know, failing a drug test or, you know, going back on his promise to retire and, and instead fighting and losing for like two or three more years. That could hurt his legacy. But other than that, I don't think there's too much he could do uh, to change, you know, negatively how we view him. I think that he he's kind of set himself up well there. And I think everybody recognizes at least the toughness and just the the love and desire for fighting that he showed in going out against Kelvin Gastelum on a damn fight pass thing in Shanghai uh, you know, three weeks after fighting on what's likely to be the biggest pay-per-view of the year for the UFC. Obviously, you just love to fight if you're doing that. Uh, so I think he's going to get that kind of tough guy points for himself. Uh, but at what cost is what I wonder. Well, and you look at the all-time great MMA careers at this point, and it's hard to find one that is not besmirched toward the end, I guess, with the notable exception of George St. Pierre. Uh, but Anderson Silva certainly has fallen off. John Jones obviously has made of trouble, a lot of trouble for himself. Fedor Emelianenko, we know about uh, the, the latter days of his career and, and what has happened. So, like, even though these back-to-back losses look kind of bad for Michael Bisping right now, I wonder if in a few years uh, we will be content to just sort of lump him in uh, with everybody else and, and certainly with most other all-time greats. Uh, who, like Chuck Liddell, et cetera, kind of lost a step toward the end of their career and, and ended on the heels of a, of several losses in a row. So I don't necessarily know that him having a rough time here separates him from from the pack of other guys that you would consider in that kind of like legacy uh, position or legacy status. He says he's going to walk away after this March fight in Manchester, England, England, across the Atlantic Sea. Uh, who we got there? I'm going to say again, it's got to be Vitor, right? Isn't Vitor booked for like January though? So it's right. Uriah Hall, I think in January. Well, that's disappointing if that's true. Yeah. I think that, I think Vitor might be spoken for I mean, Maybe he can make the turnaround. Who knows? But I, 
I hope it is somebody like that. Uh, like, cause there is a pretty good narrative with that one. Uh, especially for Michael Bisping, who might want to make the post USADA era, uh, claim. I also saw the name Leota Machida thrown around. Yeah, that would be all right. Also, that would, that would make a little bit of sense. I would just say somebody who also is, you might say, an elder statesman of MMA, uh, somebody who probably won't hurt him too bad, and somebody who's not really in the title picture because it doesn't make sense to take anybody from the, who's actually in a position where they might consider uh, being a challenger for the title to jump in there against Michael Bisping right now. Yeah, more uh, Leoto Machida than Yoel Romero. Yeah, who, who age-wise is actually older than Michael Bisping, which is still insane. All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben? And we will move on to round number two. Ben, this week, maybe an unlikely target for my Are You Fucking Kidding Me? Since everyone in the co-main event podcast universe is and will continue to be big fans of Joanna Jajic. But I just want to read this quote from her during a recent UFC Q&A where she discussed what's going on with her right now. Jajic said, I'm the real champion. I'm the real straw weight with the belt. I built this division and I will run this division. I'm still running this division. Don't worry, guys. My first fight is going to be for a belt, and I promise to you that I am going to be a champion. She, meaning Rose Namajunas, is just taking care of my belt. She's cleaning my belt. Are you fucking kidding me, dude? Why do we have to do this thing where it's becoming a trend for champions to get knocked out and lose their titles and then come back and say, no, no. I'm still the champion. You're not still the champion. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? That also, on their part, qualifies as just saying stuff. So you kind of managed to meld them both together there. It's I like to multitask. Yeah. Well, Chad, my are you fucking kidding me? Where were you at around 2 a.m. on Saturday morning? Mm, I was probably sleeping, fitfully, probably enjoying a fitful night of sleep. Ignoring my many texts. Yeah, I think uh, I was on Do Not Disturb. Updating, like, oh, you won't believe what happened with Song Yadong! Yeah, see, not my first rodeo. Yeah. Well, Chad, I, sitting there from about 1.45 a.m. on, uh, watching UFC Fight Night 122. Because, you know, hey, it's the UFC. It's supposed to be the biggest show in the game. They uh, they have a fight event. Even if it's at an ungodly hour, I'm going to sit there and I'm going to watch it. I uh, hope you're getting time and a half. As that. per terms of my employment. Uh, and then I get to a point when they keep interrupting things to show me ads for tires. Tires, Chad. Wait, on the fight pass? On the fight pass. Ads for tires? They're showing me ads for tires. You've already paid. That's right. I'm watching a paid streaming service at an ungodly hour of the morning on a Saturday. And you also just can't resist throwing in an ad for tires in there. Are you fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me? I mean, I love the Fight Pass pacing. A good commentary team. A lot of things going on in Fight Pass. But don't you try to start squeezing in ads on me now. This paid streaming service. Fucking it's 2 o'clock in the morning. Fucking kidding me. Fucking kidding me. That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two.
Sadly, it's the last week of the great Movember grooming and styling contest brought to you by the CME and our longtime sponsors at Fulton and Rourke. We'd like to thank everybody who entered. We got some truly amazing looks right up into all y'all's faces, and it was terrifying. This week, we're pleased to say the final winner of the month is Ruben Vera for his impressive stick in sending us multiple shots of what he himself described as his repulsive growth, all caps, exclamation point, adding bonus points, I work in a formal office setting. So that was really impressive stuff from Ruben. Yeah, yeah, he stuck it out for the month, too, in that formal office setting, which I really think says something about his heart. Hey, our guys at Fulton & Rourke will get a fra- fabulous prize pack of their award-winning men's grooming products out to him in the mail as soon as possible. As for the rest of you, remember that you still have a few days to shuttle some money to a good cause by making a purchase at FultonAndRourke.com. That's right. This month, Fulton & Rourke will donate 15% of all proceeds to support cancer research, treatment, and prevention. So you can go grab some of their amazing bar soap, the face wash, or any of their solid colognes and know you've done some good for the world while also cleaning your whole shit up. Again, that's FultonAndRourke.com. Well, Ben, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that I think that the most interesting fight this weekend on the UFC 218 card is this probable heavyweight title eliminator between Alistair Overeem and Francis Ngannou. It's kind of the classic tale, my friend, pitting the young up-and-comer against the cagey old veteran. I know you love that classic tale. I love a classic trope. Yeah. Throw me throw me a well-worn trope in the combat sports world, and I'm all over it. And if they happen to be heavyweights, who will probably either knock each other out or go the distance in the other kind of heavyweight fight, so much the better. I'm going for quick knockout on this one, though. This one sees round two, I'll be amazed. You know what? I was kind of, uh, it was interesting this past week, uh, a couple weekends ago, I was in Las Vegas to hang out with Francis Ngannou to do a feature that's going to come out on, on Bleacher Report later this week. And the dude, just as an aside, this dude has all-time top five harrowing and interesting life story in any sport. Uh, and I thought I... Was he bullied? Was he bullied in high school? Did he have to change hometowns? Like uh, Paige Van Zandt's inspiring story? I thought that I knew Francis Ngannou's life story before I went there, and it turned out I didn't know the half. So the bullying it. was pretty bad in high school then? So, uh, check, threw garbage on him? Check that out when it comes out, uh, I believe on Thursday this week. But as part of reporting that story, Ben, I got the opportunity to talk to a couple people, including his longtime head coach and MMA analyst, uh, Patrick Wyman. I talked to, uh, Ngannou's longtime head coach, Fernand Lopez, and Patrick Wyman about, about Francis Ngannou. And I asked them both, like, what's the best, what's this guy's best quality as a fighter? Because when you look at Francis Ngannou, the first thing you think is, or the first thing that, that strikes you is this insane physicality, right? He's six foot four, 255 pounds, incredibly athletic for the UFC heavyweight division, hits like a truck and has an 83 inch reach, which I believe is the second largest reach in the entire UFC after only John Jones, who's at like 84 and a half. So you see this impressive athleticism from Francis Ngannou and you think, dear God, this man is a monster. But then when I asked his coach and I asked Pat Wyman separately, what's the what's the best quality of this guy as a fighter? They both said it's how smart he is. And they say they that he learns techniques and synthesizes them and assimilates them into his into his fighting on the fly. Basically, uh, Fernand Lopez told me like the first time he ever watched Francis Ngannou spar, he saw that Ngannou was 
learning techniques and implementing them techniques that would take normally take a beginner like two months to learn and implement into their fighting. And Gano was doing it over the course of like one round. Which might help explain how he's gotten to this point after only like four years of fighting. Yeah, he's super inexperienced. And Patrick Wyman told me like off the top of his head, the people that he could think of that were able to do that kind of mentally within fights were John Jones, Max Holloway, uh, Dominic Cruz, and Francis Ngannou, which just tells you a little bit about, you know, the kind of prospect that he is considered to be at this point. And yet, the thing about Alistair Overeem that I was told is that at this stage in his career, Alistair Overeem is not really like the athletic headhunter that he was earlier in his career, that he has transitioned to being more of a strategist and more of a game planner. So the question about this fight will be, whether Overeem can go out there and set traps for the inexperienced Francis Ngannou and then make him pay with Overeem's obviously like world-class kickboxing skills or whether Francis Ngannou will be able to navigate around that uh, and implement his own game as kind of an inexperienced and yet a very fast-learning fighter. And that is a, a good question, I think, because, I, I, you know, the experience that... Alistair Overeem has gained over so many years of combat sports, MMA and kickboxing, has to be considered one of the really tough-to-gauge intangibles about this fight, especially you know when you compare it with the relative inexperience of Francis Ngannou. But at the same time, Alistair Overeem, for all his cagey wisdom as an MMA veteran, can still get hit on the chin and fall down at any moment. Yeah, he can, and that's one of the things about this fight is, like, is Francis Ngannou just going to be able to go out there and knock out Alistair Overeem the same way he did to Andre Arlovsky in his last fight in a minute and 32 seconds? Because if he catches him flush on the chin with any of those uh power shots with from the, that 83-inch reach, as Randy Couture liked to use, used to like to say, those long levers, he goes out there, there and go. hits you with those long levers, yeah. uh, is Alistair Overeem just going to go to sleep? Uh, and if he can't do yes. that, yes, yes, if he, he does he hit will, him, he, will, go he will probably go to sleep. But if he can't do that and he lets Alistair Overeem kind of get his feet wet and gets into a game plan type situation, like what's going to happen? To me, that's that's a fascinating aspect of this fight, which, oh, yeah, just additionally includes two of the largest men you will ever see going out there to uh, throw hard punches at each other's faces. You know, I was interested. I went and I looked at the betting odds of this one. Uh, Francis Ngannou about a two to one favorite over Alistair Overeem, and at least on BestFightOdds.com, there was only one prop bet being offered, and it was about whether the fight would be over one and a half rounds or under. I think you can guess which one is the 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 favorite, so to speak, here. Which one you can actually make some money betting on? I'm gonna take the under there. Yeah. I bet that that would be the. Uh... The favored odds? Yeah, minus 120 that it goes under one and a half rounds, which I say is a pretty good bet. And I think for, for Francis Ngannou, though, if you go out there and you win this fight, then we have to be talking about heavyweight title next, right? Just because the momentum is there, people are excited about him, uh, he just seems to bring so much to the table there. I, I think that if you actually just put a little muscle into promoting a guy like that, it would go a long, long way. Then you just have to get right with Stipe and make that fight happen. Yeah, clearly the UFC has Francis Ngannou ticketed as kind of a future star, which I think is totally understandable. He's he's a, He's been impressive in all of his first five UFC fights, and plus he's got the look. He shows up to events in those tailored suits, 
with the huge sunglasses and he's got the lightning bolt dyed in his hair over one, one ear. You just look at the guy and he just looks like an MMA star. So, you know, considering that, considering his relatively young age for the division and how quickly he's been on the rise here, I think it's totally understandable that the UFC has him ticketed as a future star. Uh, and if he wins this, he would seem to have the inside track because the only other person that you could really, uh, think could steal that away from him might be Fabricio Verdum, who obviously just got a win over Marcin Tibera a couple weeks ago. And yet Verdum has already lost to Stipe, doesn't seem to have sort of the promotional juice that Francis Ngannou has right now. And if you can, if you think that Cain Velasquez is going to probably continue to, to be a going concern in the injury department, I don't think you could do much better than Stipe Miocic versus Francis Ngannou sometime during the first half of 2018. Hell yeah. And exactly what you mentioned, you know, he's already fought, uh, Stipe's already fought Verdum, already fought over him. You need a little bit of fresh blood. And if it can be like really exciting and for that division, especially relatively young, that's as much as you could hope for. And like, if you want to make a, a big, both literally and in terms of like revenue and attention heavyweight fight, there it is. Yeah. Served up on a platter for you. Yeah. If Francis Ngannou wins. Right. And which is kind of the, the if here, like this being the UFC heavyweight division, uh, we know that to this point in UFC history, it has been the bull no man could ride. Uh, and so if somebody's going to get bucked off here, it would seem like the time for the UFC heavyweight divisional curse to strike would be now. Right? Yeah. Because you wouldn't get, uh, the highly anticipated matchup between Stipe Miocic and Francis Ngannou, which is like two of the most athletic, uh, and most dangerous heavyweights we've ever seen. Uh, not to mention a couple of popular guys who, who kind of get it done outside of the cage. Also, uh, it would be among the most anticipated heavyweight title fights in, in history, I would think, in UFC history. And so, uh, if there's a banana peel out there, you know the heavyweight division is going to do its damnedest to There's, somebody slips on it. Jump right on that bad boy. So you got Lilia like Gano here, early stoppage? Oh. Yeah. Well, or are you just going to say somebody? Somebody gets knocked out here? No, I'm going to say Ngano. I mean, I think as long as he doesn't uh, make the mistake of standing in Overeem's kicking range for way too long and let him get that game going, which, you know, everything about what we've seen, his, his fight IQ so far suggests that he won't make that mistake since it's, the book's kind of out there on that one. Uh, yeah, I like Ngano to go out there, touch Overeem's chin, and send him into the land of wind and ghosts. First round. Yeah, before we move on to round three, I will just share this anecdote from the upcoming Francis Ngano story. We talk about this sometimes in the past, Ben, uh, <clears throat> that it sometimes seems like these MMA fighters don't have the greatest plans for their lives, and yet, if you're really good at it, it just seems to kind of work out. Francis Ngannou, who I think a lot of people listening to this know, was homeless on the streets of Paris after he emigrated from Cameroon. His plan as a homeless guy on the streets of Paris was to walk around to various boxing gyms and to go into one if he saw one that seemed promising, to talk to the boxing coach and to say, I'm homeless, I don't have anywhere to sleep, I don't have any money, I don't have any family here, but I just need somewhere to train because I'm going to be the world champion. Ah, okay. Which for you and I, not a great approach. Nope. When you walk into a boxing gym looking like Francis Ngannou, it doesn't take very long to find a boxing coach who is interested, who will take you up on that. Someone who will say, yeah, man, what do you, do you need some gloves or yeah. anything? Like, well, I, I, let's get you a cot set up and back. Come on in. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three.
then the Big Daddy, the main event, the marquee attraction at UFC 218 will be this men's featherweight title fight between champion Max Holloway and former champion Jose Aldo, who obviously comes in on somewhat short notice to fill in for the injured Frankie Edgar, who is himself a former champion, albeit in a different division. You know, Jose Aldo, Ben, went from being the unanimous choice as the greatest 145-pound mixed martial artist of all time to being kind of a tragic figure, I would say, in the wake of his loss to Conor McGregor. Uh, we haven't seen much of him since then uh, in the cage, uh, but it seems like every time he shows up in an interview setting, you kind of feel like, okay, well, what is Jose Aldo going to say now? And then immediately walk away from. It strikes me as both incredibly weird and uh, totally MMA to think about this fight with Max Holloway. What will it do to Jose Aldo's legacy if he goes out there and wins this goddamn thing and kind of out of nowhere became the featherweight champion all over again? It's so hard for me to even get in the space to consider that hypothetical, which is weird considering, as you said before, the dominance that Jose Aldo once had over that division. But... It's really hard for me to imagine him going out there and beating Max Holloway. It's harder now than it was before. I mean, it was a, a close fight right, kind of until Holloway took it over the last time. I don't even think it'll be as close anymore because I think Holloway just is going to continue getting better and Jose Aldo might be on the, the tail end kind of that starting that downward slope of his career, which, you know, it happens. It's not like a uh, an indictment of him or anything. Uh but it, if he were to go out there and against a Max Holloway who looked still as good as Max Holloway has looked and he just goes out there and beats him, especially finishes him or something, um, I would have to reevaluate everything I think I know about what's going on in that division. I, I, I kind of don't even want to do that. Yeah, it's well, it's hard to uh, to shortchange Holloway or not like Holloway's chances in this fight, I guess, just because even though it seems like he's been in the damn UFC forever, he's still only 25 years old. Uh, and while maybe not quite as much of an unfinished product as a guy like Francis Ngannou, like you think Max Holloway is still one of these young fighters who's probably improving a great deal between every fight. And so the fact that he beat Jose Aldo back at UFC 212 in June of this year uh, makes you think, you know, Max Holloway has probably improved since then. You don't know uh, how much more success Jose Aldo is going to be able to have uh, in this rematch. Although, you know, you talk about, it's seeming weird that like Max Holloway has been in the UFC forever. Jose Aldo literally has been around forever. And yet he just turned 31 years old a couple months ago. How is that possible? I know. Isn't that insane? I would assume that in fighting years, he's somewhat older. Yeah. But, well, but not a ton because it's not like he absorbed a ton of damage. I mean, he did, he, he seemed to get injured in training fairly often, but then, you know, didn't go through with those fights. So, and it's not like prior to that Conor McGregor fight, he was taking a whole lot of shots in any of these fights that he was winning. So maybe, you know, the, the chronological age is a little bit closer to his actual fight age. But it's still, it just seems like Max Holloway has found another gear recently and it's hard for me to imagine how jose aldo goes out there and beats him now especially you know now if you're max holloway you know before maybe there was a part of you that was wondering can you do it can you beat somebody like jose aldo who's been you know the king of the division for so long you know even he lost that one fight to mcgregor then came back and beat frankie edgar and you know kind of was looking like the old jose aldo again and you might be wondering like hey i think i am the best i think i can be the best but can i actually go out there and do it now you know you can and you know you can finish him it seems like 
with that extra boost of confidence, that just propels him a little for, a little further ahead of Jose Aldo, if anything. Yeah, Max Holloway is going to be the favorite here for a reason. Do you have the odds? Still? I think it's like a three to one favorite. Really, that's pretty long. Uh, the thing about Jose Aldo is that I feel like it's hard to gauge where he's even at right now, just because prior to that UFC 194 fight against Conor McGregor, I thought for all the world that this was going to be the fight where the Conor McGregor uh, myth was kind of exposed, right? Like Jose Aldo had been so good over so many years. I was like, Jose Aldo ends up running circles around this dude in, in a mixed martial arts fight. Instead, he runs headlong, sprinting into the Conor McGregor left hand, gets knocked out in 13 seconds. And since then, like, I don't know if it was just the timing of it, but since then, uh, you know, Jose Aldo has seemed like a somewhat less fearsome figure in the 145 pound landscape. However, like he's only been fighting the best, right? He fought Conor McGregor. He fought Frankie Edgar. And as you said, he fought Max Holloway in a fight where he was pretty competitive leading up to that third round where he eventually got stopped. So, you know, you couple that with the fact that he's had a lot of fights, but is relatively still relatively young. I honestly have no idea what to expect from Jose Aldo this weekend in this fight. And that's why I would entertain the notion, even if it seems fanciful, like, dude, what if he goes out there and wins this? Too weird. It's too weird even to think about. Well, what do you think, though, the short notice aspect of it does? Do you think that, because that seems like, you know, Jose Aldo has always been kind of meticulous about preparation and wouldn't really go in there hurt uh, like a lot of guys would have, even if it meant drawing the UFC's ire. Uh, And now, you know, maybe he just felt like, hey, you're not going to, they're not going to come around with this offer again. Uh, Frankie Edgar gets hurt, has to pull out of the fight. And so he jumps in there. Uh, do you wonder how ready Jose Aldo is? Yeah. I mean, I think if you want to read it that way, you can certainly read it as a little bit of desperation on his part, right? Like, and if you go back to recent interviews of his, it has seemed like he has had a hard time, uh, getting his head straight about his MMA career. He's talked about walking away. Uh, at times and then kind of backed off that he has done the thing that Joanna Yajacek did where he claimed he was still the champ and then he you know he said that there was never a rivalry between him and Conor McGregor so huh. a lot of stuff that when you that? when you hear Jose Aldo say it you you, you kind of wonder where his head is at uh, but it could be the exact opposite thing Ben it could be maybe it's not desperation maybe Jose Aldo uh, is in hella good shape Maybe he's ready to go out there and, okay. and, and give it give it his all. Maybe this comes at the, the perfect time for him. Maybe. Maybe. I would say more likely that even if you were in pretty good shape, you maybe weren't in hella good shape. You weren't ready, like, you know, timing your, your physical peak the way Max Holloway was. I mean, granted, neither one of them maybe have to go crazy trying to game plan for each other or find just the right sparring partner since they fought already and are somewhat familiar with each other. But still, there's a difference between being in pretty good shape and being ready to throw down in the cage there for possibly five rounds. Yeah, and uh, against Max Holloway, which is obviously one of the uh, more difficult situations to be in in the division, Max Holloway is one of these dudes, I talked about how he's been in the UFC since 2012, he he broke into the UFC, I think, straight out of elementary school instead of going yeah. to uh, sixth grade. Yeah. He got his UFC contract. Uh, and Risky be- move, but it paid off. Because of that, because we have kind of watched him grow up before our very eyes, especially in the wake of that loss to Conor McGregor back in 2013, which was uh, his most recent professional loss, I feel like 
he has slowly but surely established himself as a future all-time great in a way that maybe some of us didn't even notice until, boom, all of a sudden he's out there, you know, beating Anthony Pettis and beating Jose Aldo by impressive TKOs, and now you look at the entire body of work and the athletic gifts and you think, wow, what we're this guy, maybe he's the new greatest featherweight of all time. Yeah, I, I mean, if there's a downside to this fight for him, I think that it does not give him an opportunity too much to add to that. Since he already finished Jose Aldo, I think what's more likely to happen, if he goes out there and he, even if he finishes him again and looks awesome doing it, people are going to say, Aldo's shot, or Aldo shouldn't have taken this fight, or whatever. I don't think that it's going to add yet to what people think of Max Holloway. And what I wonder really about Jose Aldo with the short notice thing is, as we've seen in the past, weight cuts were not always super easy for him, That's even true. when he knew well in advance that they were coming. We've seen, you know, the videos of him lying on the floor in the hotel room covered in towels saying he doesn't think he can make it. You do have to wonder what that weight cut looks like on significantly shorter notice and what it takes out of him possibly on fight night. What about the old man Frankie Edgar? You know, when they booked this fight, I think there was a, you know, it it, it felt like, I guess it felt a little bit like the Max Holloway, Jose Aldo booking feels like where you just, you know, you got this former champion from the lightweight division, but who a guy who's a little bit long on the tooth. It feels like we've seen Frankie Edgar fight for UFC titles again and again and again. So when they book Max Holloway against Frankie Edgar, maybe it was the right fight to make at the time. And obviously uh, I'm a big admirer of everything Frankie Edgar has done in the UFC, but it also kind of felt like old business in a way. And I wonder now, you know, he falls out of this fight with injury, assuming Max Holloway beats Jose Aldo, is the move to go back and rebook Frankie Edgar? Or are you going to see somebody like uh, Cub Swanson or, or uh, you know, maybe even Brian Ortega or Ricardo Lamas or somebody like that jump up and take that number one contender spot uh, from the old man? It's entirely possible if one of them makes a strong case for it. I, I think that somebody like Cub Swanson would be your, your best bet because he already has a significant fan following. You can count on him to put on exciting fights. I, I mean, I would not have been opposed if they had chosen Cub Swanson if he had managed to get this fight filling in for Frankie Edgar. So, you know, be careful because if you're out for too long, Man, it's entirely possible that somebody else makes a strong enough case and everybody just kind of conveniently forgets that this was ever your fight to begin with. It seemed like there were some sore feelings on the part of Cub Swanson. Didn't he Didn't he go deadpan on Twitter and like send a tweet that said something like, congratulations to Jose Aldo for getting another shot at a UFC title <laughs> or something like that? Yeah, well, he was really enthusiastic about volunteering for the fight on Twitter too, which, you know, hey, credit to Cubby Sampson for upping his Twitter game. All right, let's do Just Saying Stuff, and then we will get out of here for this week. Ben, what's your Just Saying Stuff? Well, Chad, you, I'm sure, didn't see this because it happened at like 3.30 in the damn morning. But Chase Sherman, who first, before this fight in Shanghai, went out there and threw a little shade at Shamil Abdurakimov, saying that he fights like a girl. Oh, okay. Which is already, you know... Not not going to make you a whole lot of fans. Uh, and then he goes out there against the guy who he says fight like like a girl. Uh, and he gets knocked out in, I believe it was 84 seconds. I'm just saying, Chad, let us never forget that the MMA gods are similar to, like, the old Greek gods. And that it's not just, like, you know, some, like, one, like, paternalistic father figure type god up there on Mount Zion's 
making all the decisions according to his whims. There's a series of MMA gods, and you know, there's they're on both sides of the aisle there, so to speak. I think that's one thing that we've seen. So just because you know you're on in good with the Apollo of the MMA gods doesn't mean that you're super in good with the Athena of the MMA gods, if you know what I'm saying. You throw something like this out there, you are begging for an 84-second knockout, and then you kind of look foolish. I'm just saying. Just saying. Well, Ben, did you see this past week that uh, women's bantamweight champion Amanda Nunez came out and said something to the effect of, uh, I need to have blonde hair and blue eyes if I want the UFC to promote me more, and then following some sort of backlash online responded by saying, Hey, hey you guys settle down. I'm just joking. <laughs> so I guess this week I'm just saying, <laughs> Oh, we're all, we all laugh nervously and avoid looking each other in the <laughs> eyes at this hilarious joke, which has no kernel of truth to it at all. And it does not seem like exactly the right thing for Amanda Nunez to say, because it is true that that is what the UFC likes to promote. And then we all walk away casually whistling, just, just having a normal day after a hilarious joke. Yeah, it's a joke because it's obviously not true. Just, I'm just saying. Just saying. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back next week to tell you about all the stuff that happens at both the Ultimate Fighter Season 26 finale and UFC 218. And I do believe we will look ahead to uh, Swanson versus Ortega. Fight night 123. Although that goes down December 9th, so it's possible we have one week between next week's show and that event. You know what? We'll figure out something to talk we'll, about. Something, we'll get it. It's not a big deal. Don't worry. We're professionals. We do this every week. Yeah. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. So, do you feel like maybe if Francis Ngannou could come up with a story about how he was bullied in high school, then he could get a memoir deal? I feel like that's the one piece of the puzzle missing for the hard to travel story. I mean, sure, you're homeless, like after immigrating to a completely new country, but were you bullied? Did they throw trash on Because then you got a memoir. I mean, maybe we're looking at a Paige Van Zandt dancing with the stars type situation? I'm just throwing out ideas. It works for her, right?